Well, every so once in life, you have a wake-up call of some sort that kind of startles you out of your delusion and helps you to meet some hard reality. So think of this, you maybe get pulled over and the officer gives you the ticket rather than the warning. Not exactly what you hoped for. You could be perhaps coming into work and your boss fires you because you've shown up late just one too many times. Kind of a hard jolt with reality. Perhaps your spouse says, enough is enough and you are not taken back one more time. It's a hard reminder of the boundaries that there are in life to relationships, the boundaries that are there. And it's a wake-up call. And each one of us will face these at points in our lives. A wise man once said, it's wise to learn from your own mistakes, but it's even wiser to learn from someone else's mistakes. The problem with that though is many of us aren't really paying attention when other people make mistakes to apply the lessons to ourselves. We often think, I know how this goes with me, we think, well, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> I would know when to, to pull back. I would know how to evade that. I wouldn't end up in the same situation that they did. Well, today's message is a wake-up call for your worship life. It's a wake-up call for your worship life. For some of us here, we're on track and we are worshiping God as he is worth. So this is a message of warning that you can take to remind yourself of what happens when you don't worship God properly. We're going to be looking at some mistakes that God's people made that the prophet Malachi calls out. But then there's some of us here that this is your wake-up call for worship because your worship has drifted and it is no longer honoring to God. And this is meant to be a, a hard reminder to remind you to shake you from your delusions. Here's what I want to help us to do is to not assume that we're not in that category to assume my worship is fine. God needs to do his work here in each one of our lives, including my own. And I've titled this sermon as such, Profane Worship, Exposing the Lies that Defile Our Worship. Profane isn't a word you probably use every day. Profane can mean common instead of sacred, but it can also mean, and this is the context our passage uses it in, it can also mean defiled or polluted or irreverent. If you think of the word profanity, obscene speech, that gives you the idea of profaneness. Or think of taking your nation's flag, putting it on the ground, stomping it in the mud. That would be to profane the flag, to show great disrespect for it. The message this morning from God's word is that God does not accept profane worship. God does not accept profane worship. Wake up. He does not accept profane worship. Now there's two common reactions to that statement. The first one is just, I don't care. Who cares if God doesn't accept my, my worship or not, if it's profane? And those are the, that's the mindset of an unbeliever that clearly doesn't even think to care about who God is or what he said. Profane worship, they just don't care. But there's another attitude, perhaps more common, which says, I agree. God does not accept profane worship. That's not my problem though because my worship's not profane. So this is a message for someone else. That kind of response sounds good until you understand that what you think doesn't always line up with what is. What you think is proper doesn't necessarily line up with what God accepts. This is what the people of Israel had to be reminded of by the prophet Malachi. 
He came with a message from God. That's what a prophet does with a wake-up call. They had begun to believe lives to deceive, them, deceive themselves. And as a result, their worship became profane. It became polluted. So as we read the passage in Malachi 1, what I want us to ask ourselves is, what kind of lies led them to that? What kind of lies then do we believe that defile our worship and make it profane? Another way to ask this is just to say, what should worship look like? What is worship? What should it look like? As I listen to Christians talk about worship or praise of God or, or their experiences in church, I'm not convinced that we understand properly what worship is. So let's turn to Malachi 1 verses 16 to 14. And now this is to set the context for some of you, an Old Testament minor prophet. They call it a minor prophet just because it's a shorter book. But he is speaking to the people of Israel and he's speaking to them in a specific time period. So the people of Israel had been given a land by God. They'd been promised land. They inherited that land and God gave them rules for where to worship, how to worship, etc. The sacrifices to bring. And they had put up idols and they had put up with idolatry. And as a result, God sent the Babylonians to exile them, to take them into captivity. And they were in captivity for years. Then God graciously restored them to the land. And you would think by this point, okay, we learned our lesson. We're not going to do that again. And so quickly they become complacent, complacent again with the worship of God. They do not worship him the way he deserves or requires. And so the prophet Malachi is sent. And the first lie that they are tempted to believe and that we likewise today are tempted to believe is that I can worship God however I want and he will accept it. God is love. He's, he's kindness. He's good. He's like the ultimate shock absorber. I can give him anything and he'll just take it. He'll take it. This is a lie and it's not true. And so we're going to look at verse six to pick up and to hear the prophet Malachi expose this. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table, that's another name for the altar, the Lord's, or another reference there, the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? The text reminds us right away that he's father, he's master. Those were titles of respect. And the people hearing this heard, oh, we respect fathers. We respect masters. We should respect God even more so. I'm not sure that that metaphor works so well in our day and age because children do not, by and large, respect fathers, parents. Society does not respect fathers. In fact, sometimes we inverse it and fathers fear their children or parents fear their children and the responses of their children, whether their children are happy or not. When you think of the employment area, we've often flattened authority. And so employees don't talk to their 
their boss properly. I was talking to one of you, a brother here this week at his shop and explaining, he was explaining to me, he wears a red shirt as the boss so that everybody knows the red shirt is the boss. Keep the, the authority lines clear. And I think we need that in society. I'm just not sure Malachi's message hits us the same as it hits the Israelites because there's so much disrespect for authority. In a well-ordered society, a father would be honored by their son. Their son would never dream of saying no to their dad and getting away with it. A master, a servant would never dream of disobeying or disregarding the master's orders. And so the Israelites hearing this, they hear this as a wake-up call. You are not treating God with the respect he deserves, with the, 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 the sacredness he deserves. The Old Testament sacrificial system, which Malachi is referring to here, had strict regulations. So super strict about where you should worship, the type of sacrifice you should bring, how it should be brought, how it should be sacrificed. You don't have to turn there, but just note Deuteronomy 15 verse 21 this is when God's explaining the rules. He says, but if it has any blemish, if, an, if a sacrifice has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You would actually would have been ashamed to bring it. Just imagine for a moment, you're going to the temple to worship. You're going to the tabernacle at one point to worship. You're bringing your, your animal for a sin sacrifice. The priest examines it and is like, you brought something blind, get out of here. And you'd have to walk back through all your friends, the whole crowd. You would have been ashamed. Everybody would be like, you know you don't bring a blind animal to sacrifice. And yet, clearly, something had gone wrong because they were offering that. So people had become complacent with God's word. Notice this. He calls it evil that they offered these blind animals that are lame and sick. And he addresses the priests. I think this is super instructive for us. He addresses the priests. Why? Because the priests were the one who were supposed to inspect the animal and say, this is good or not good. The people were wrong to bring a blemished offering, but the priests were absolutely wrong to accept it, to go along with it and to offer it up. And this shows us also about human nature in multiple ways. Number one, human nature will always test the limits. You have to know this whether it's a child, a student, an employee, a spouse, everybody knowingly or unknowingly in relationship will test the limits to see what's the minimum requirement. So a student writes a test, they didn't study real well for it. And if the teacher gives them an A+, they now know I don't have to invest that much. And they will never invest more than what is required to meet your expectations unless they somehow become motivated by something else. Similarly, people in worship, in church culture, will push the boundaries all the time. And it's just normal. We do it subtly. We don't even do it knowingly. But this is how worship becomes profane, because we don't hem in our behavior. We don't look at what Scripture says and then confront it. So to anyone who's a leader in this room, perhaps you're a small group leader, Perhaps you are a, a leader of a ministry or even a worship leader. Perhaps you are somebody who is responsible for others, a parent. Be very careful of what you accept, what you allow to take place under your watch, because acceptance as a leader is silent approval. 
As a leader, it is. If you allow it to happen, it is silent approval. You could say to yourself, it's just this once to bring in the blemished animal, the blind animal. It's just once. Just once. I don't want to send them home. Home is far from them. This animal is otherwise going to be wasted. We'll just use it. Well, now you have allowed it, and now it becomes the pattern. Just once people don't bother to show up for small group. Just once people don't bother to sing and participate in worship. Just once this person makes worship all about themselves. Just once. Give them a break. They had a hard week. Just once turns into profane worship. You as a leader will bear responsibility for profane worship that happens under your watch. And you as a leader then must enforce boundaries because of human nature. It's what we do. We test limits. And we don't want to fall into the lie that we can offer to God whatever we want and think he will accept it. Now there's another thing super instructive in this passage. Sometimes you will offer worship and nobody will critique it, but it is still not acceptable to God because your leader is not doing their job. So just because somebody hasn't confronted you, somebody hasn't called out your profane worship, because a lot of profane worship happens when your heart is not right, and I can't see that, your leaders can't see that, just because nobody calls it out does not mean your worship is accepted. The priests did not call it out. People could have started to think, nothing's happening. Lightning isn't striking us. God must accept it. It must be acceptable to God. And that is not true. Just because nobody is saying anything doesn't mean it is okay. And you may perhaps not want anybody to find out that your worship is not acceptable, or you may not want to find that out. Some of us drop off donations at a thrift store. You take clothes out of your closet. You look at them, say, I don't need this anymore. Or more often, I wouldn't wear this anymore. And you package it up in bags and drop it off as a donation store and you feel good. It's not gone to the landfill. Somebody else can use it, get discounted clothing. And then you drive away. Do you really want to know how much of your clothing makes it onto the racks to be sold? Most of us don't. Most of us would hate to know that 50% of what is donated to thrift stores is thrown in the trash because they look at it and they say, why in the world did you waste my time donating stuff nobody wants to wear to the thrift store just to be thrown in the trash? Most people don't want to know whether their, their gift is accepted or not. They just want to get it off their, off their chest. Do you really want to know whether your worship is accepted or is it more about, and I've fallen into this trap before, let's get through to Sunday afternoon. Let's just get through it. Or do you want to know, God, are you accepting my worship? Now, this brings us to an important point because you don't bring animal sacrifices. This text, we have to do some translating to the new covenant. In the old covenant, before Jesus, you would bring an animal. And it was easy to tell that animal's blind. What does the blind sacrifice look like for us today? It's not an animal. What are the parameters of new covenant worship, we could say? We know in principle, it's not a free-for-all. We know God determines what is acceptable worship, not us. But what does it look like? And that is, frankly, a big discussion that we can't cover every facet of today. I was trying to figure a way to pack it all in, and we can't. So let's start with ground zero. We'll get a few pieces of the puzzle in and then you need to do some homework 
and take this further and ask, what does God require? First, though, to understand what God requires, you need to understand fundamentally what worship is under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Fundamentally, what is worship? Worship itself, if you actually look at the origins of the word used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, has physical dimensions to it. So in the Old Covenant, worship means literally, the word means to lick the hand or to kiss the hand. It's like a a dog would lick its master's hand. Under the New Covenant, the word worship means literally getting down on your face before someone, prostrating yourself before them face down. And the goal of both of those things is to show the supremacy of the one that you are worshiping or the thing you are worshiping. So it's interesting. It's got a physical connotation to it at the very start of it. Now, as we read scripture, you're going to find that worship is described both by external actions, like bringing a sacrifice or in the new covenant, singing as well as under the old covenant, but it's also shown to be an internal reality of the heart. This is true of the old covenant and new covenant. This is what's required for true worship to have both physical display as well as a heart attitude. Now it seems in my study of scripture that God places a priority on the heart, but not because he doesn't care about actions, but because he knows actions are downstream from heart. And if your heart's in the right place, it will show up in actions. But if your actions are right, you could have a heart far from him. Matthew 15 tells us that. These people worship me with their mouth. They they profess me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. We know how easy it is to put on the show, to, to fake it. When you have a heart that's right, you can't. And this is what Jesus is explaining then by focusing on the heart. So it makes a priority, makes sense for us to, in our understanding, what does worship look like for us? Well, worship fundamentally has to have a heart attitude towards God that adores him, that sees him as supreme over all, even over yourself. So where's your heart at in worship? And we can think of corporate worship at this point. Are you distracted of what others are thinking about you? Because that is a a very common snare that we fall into. At Harvest, we have a pillar called unashamed adoration. It's on the wall out in the hallway. And the reason it's it's one of our core pillars is to say, this is a value for us. This is how we believe discipleship happens. This is what we believe glorifies, glorifies God, is to adore him without shame. When you have a moment in worship where you are inhibited from worshiping, Because your mind goes to, what does think? You have now started to profane your worship. Because your worship now has put God second, someone else first. They are the the limit to your worship. In that moment, we have placed people in front of God. We've become people pleasers. We've become people pleasers or concerned about our reputation. And we have lost focus of who we are worshiping. We are worshiping God. Now, as an aside, and this is just for a very select few of you in the room, when you worship, you do sort of have to think about other people. If you slap them in the face when your hand's going up to worship, you're not going to help and glorify God, even though you're like, this is unashamed adoration. Yeah, well, be, be considerate in your unashamed adoration. Make sure that you're aware of others, but not aware of others in such a way that you think, 
what do they think about me? Just ask yourself the question, what do they think about God in this moment? What do they think about God in this moment? Is my influence helping them to think God is great? God is worthy of worship? Or is my influence making them think God is about as exciting as watching paint dry? That's how excited I look. We want to think about others in that sense, leading them to worship. Now, mature worshipers can worship God amidst a sea of distractions. They can worship God even when the children are crying. They can worship because they realize who they're worshiping. So please don't be the the mature worshiper that complains about distractions. We want to eliminate distractions so that people can worship God, but we we should not be hindered in our own worship that way. So I want to go back to uh, the New Testament idea of worship and show one more thing. John 4, verses 23 to 24. Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman and he says this, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Notice he says father again, that title of respect and honor. Jesus had explained to the Samaritan woman, the location of worship is about to change. It had been Jerusalem and you were wrong to set up another altar somewhere else. When Jesus sacrificed his body for us, worship was not anymore to be only located in Jerusalem, but it was profoundly changed. It was in spirit and in truth. So what this means is Jesus the perfect sacrifice. Before you had to bring an unblemished sacrifice and make sure the sacrifice was, took a lot of care about the sacrifice. When Christ became our perfect sacrifice, now we take great, great care in portraying that sacrifice accurately. Do not offer a blemished Jesus in your worship, a Jesus that does not exist in scripture. You want to be true in your worship. This is what Jesus is saying. We want to worship in spirit and in truth. When we sing false lyrics about Jesus, we're profaning him in our worship, but also in spirit. In other words, from a heart that's made alive by God and is tuned to worship him. As I mentioned, Matthew 15 says, their heart is far from me. Yeah, their their lips are right, but their heart is far from me. We don't want to do away with that. So don't buy into the lie that you can worship God with whatever heart you have, that you can say whatever you want. I heard just a while ago about a a church that actually for Mother's Day sang about God, you're a good, good mother. And they took a song, you're a good, good father and twisted it to sing about Mother's Day. And the, the sermon was filled with all kinds of falsehoods. We can't do that. We cannot take what scripture says and then just twist it to our own agenda. We need to make sure we represent God accurately. But don't just get hard on a church that sings strange lyrics like that. Look in your own life and see. You can fool others with outward worship, but is your heart tuned to worship God? If not, you're offering him profane worship. And this is why Malachi continues and he calls them to repent. Verse 9, he says, And now... Entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? And the answer is no. Now, the the response when we realize 
my worship has been less than what God is deserving of, is to repent, to seek his favor. And in seeking his favor, we're realizing we're coming back to what worship's all about. Lord, my worship wasn't about honoring you. I want to honor you. Make it so that my worship is acceptable to you. This is what it means to worship God rightly. Now, the people of Israel also believed another lie. One, frankly, I think happens quite a lot in our society as well. And they believed the lie that doing something was better than doing nothing. Which sounds good until you realize what it is. The text continues in verse 10. Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the door that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Check that out. Look at it again. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Just one. God's desire is that they would shut it down. You ever ask yourself, if you read this passage, why hadn't they shut down worship already? Why were they doing it? Well, under there was a lie that doing something was better than doing nothing. Offering defiled worship is better than nothing. We got to have a service. People are expecting it. We'll do something. Well, God makes it clear that's not the case. The case is he would rather shut the whole thing down than have his name profaned in the worship gathering. Same is true today. He would rather this whole thing be shut down, close the doors, bolt them, than that we profane the name of God. And here's the reason why. When you don't worship God, everybody knows there's a problem. Everybody knows that knows anything, that God deserves some kind of worship. Even the pagans would be like, oh, they don't worship their God? What's up with that? But when you offer defiled worship, polluted worship, you can fall into the trap of thinking that's something. And also you fall into the trap of now you've misrepresented God to people. And they think this is what God really looks like. And you've borne false witness. You have lied about who God is. God does not want that. He wants his name protected. He wants his reputation protected. Think of it this way. Would you rather on your birthday be brought a meal by somebody who is your favorite meal but they made it three weeks ago and had it in the freezer. It's freezer burnt. They brought it out two days early and it's got maggots infesting it. And now they bring it to you on your birthday. No, or would you rather have nothing for meal that day? The, the answer is all of us would rather fast on our birthday than eat a maggot infested freezer burnt meal. And the reason is, first of all, it's disgusting. But second of all, you would rather that whole incident never happened. That somebody actually cares about you so little that they thought it was okay to bring you a maggot-infested dinner. It's disgusting. Well, think about this in the context of our worship to God. When the Israelites brought defective offerings, they were in essence saying, God's not worth much, not a big deal. They were insulting him. They were saying, you can't have our best. You're not worth our best. And God says, no. I do not accept that worship. Now, you could have a little bit of compassion on these people and say, well, maybe they had a tough week and maybe they don't have really nice animals to bring. Maybe they don't have like a whole lineup of really nice male offerings to bring. 
But the Levitical law made an exception for that. The Levitical law in Leviticus 5 actually says, hey, if you're too poor to own the livestock that the offering requires, you can bring two pigeons instead. And if you're so poor that you can't bring two pigeons, you can bring some flour. Flour! And that will be acceptable. The point was you had to bring the best of what you had to God in worship in order to bring your best. Clearly they had better and they were not bringing it. That's what it says in terms of curse the person who has this male livestock that they've devoted and they bring blemished offerings instead. Are you willing to bring your best in worship? When people aren't willing to bring their best, they're dishonoring God and it would be better to stop it and shut it down. Half-hearted worship is not better than no worship. Hear that again. Half-hearted. If you are only going to bring half-hearted worship, do not bring your half-hearted worship. Shut it down. God is worthy of your best. You profane the name of God when you bring half of it. Now, there's two ways I want to apply this idea of not bring half-hearted worship. One is in the context of our congregational worship, our corporate worship. So bringing the best means bringing 100% of yourself to worship of God. Regardless of what you feel, you bring the best. Even if the gas tank is half full, you bring the half full gas tank, the very, very best that you have. Do you come to church with the mindset of let's get through this? Let's put up with worship? Or do you come with the mindset of, I will worship God with all that I have? I don't want to be hard on people, and I wasn't watching today, intentionally looking for people. But if you come late to worship because you have a flat tire, that's one thing. If you come late to worship as a repeated pattern, you are communicating to the people around you, God's not worthy. He's not worthy. If you leave early from worship, you're like, the sermon's done. The last song is just a buffer so that the people that want to can get out the driveway quick and they don't wait in the parking lot. Then you've misunderstood the whole point of what we're trying to do here. We are trying to offer unashamed adoration to God. And you're communicating, he's not worthy. I talked with our tech team. Apparently, they try to be very thoughtful about when they put the numbers up for calling your kids so that you're not distracted in the middle of worship. Worship is important. We want to worship God with all that he is. Now they said that they actually put those call numbers up in the middle of my sermons instead. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> what's up with that? <laughs> so, all right, listen closely. The point being, bring your best in worship to God. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20 says this to the church, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I may step on some toes here. Singing is commanded in scripture. Physical worship means, worship means to be both physical and spiritual. What captures your heart is going to capture your mouth is another way to say this. Some that think that worship can be done without the body. So I'm worshiping God in my mind, in my heart, I'm worshiping God. 
That sounds good. That's half-hearted worship. Worship that happens in your heart will come out of your mouth. If your mouth never speaks and professes and ascribes worth to God, even if you speak it because you don't have the ability to tonally sing along, that's sufficient. But if you do not speak, don't think that there's actually worship going on in your heart. Scripture says, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. Romans 12.1, you can jot this down and look this up. This is so radical in our society. It says there, to offer your bodies up as a living sacrifice and that this is your spiritual worship. Get that. Spiritual worship means to offer your bodies up as a living sacrifice. It does not mean spiritual worship does not mean offer your, your spirit up. No, the entire being is offered to God in worship. Worship is not worship when it is head up, as we say. Worship has to be including our bodies. We have to sing worship. Now, there's times when I don't sing in worship and there's reasons for that. The reason is my heart's not in the right place yet and I don't want to be false with my worship. So we sing a song, I Surrender All. We're not interested in everybody singing, I Surrender All, when you're not ready to surrender all. When you're actually like, no, nah, I'm not surrendering it. I'm holding on to my anger from this week. I'm holding on to my bitterness. I'm holding on to that secret sin. If you're not willing to surrender at all, don't, don't offer false worship and say, I'm going to surrender at all. But please don't also fall into the trap of saying, well, I do surrender at all, but I just don't need to say anything. I just don't need to ever proclaim him through song. We need to worship God with mind, soul, strength, body, with our entire beings. Revelation 4 explains that the elders are going to be around the throne of God bowing in worship. And I can guarantee you there's not a single elder there that's like, I don't actually bow in worship. Because they are before God and God alone. Now we have the ability to worship in different ways to different degrees in terms of our physical presence. Part of that might be culturally bound. If you at home tell me, I actually never raise my hand worshiping. Well, then I'd be surprised to see you do that here. Doesn't mean you shouldn't stretch yourself and try it. First Timothy 2.8 tells us that Paul desires holy men would lift up holy hands in prayer. It's, it stretches us because it's not culturally normal to lift up holy hands in prayer, but Scripturally, there's precedent for lifting up holy hands in prayer. We want to think again about how we are worshiping. Is our worship being inhibited by what others are thinking of us? Not trying to be mindless or trying to be, you know, in the first service, I said, if I worshiped without a shirt on, I don't think people would be glorifying God more. They wouldn't be worshiping me. They'd just be like, put a shirt on. We want to make sure that we're not distracting people, but at the same time, don't buy the lie that you can just offer half-hearted worship and it is acceptable to God. We bring the best for God's glory or we shut it down. Secondary of application of this idea though, worship, the focal point of worship is when you are singing or praying, you are ascribing praise to God with your mouth. But there's also a sense in which you live your life worshipfully. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16 says this, through him, that's Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of, of praise to God. 
that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We've, we've talked about that. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Sacrifices. When you do good to others, that's a sacrifice. In the old covenant, there were multiple sacrifices. Some were for sin. Those have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He has been the one and only final sin offering. We don't bring any other offering to God for sin. But there's other offerings that were a thank offering, totally voluntary. You could bring it when you felt like it, so to speak. And you bring this offering to give thanks to God as a sacrifice. In one sense, the modern parallel in the New Testament is we sacrifice for the good of others, showing love to others, putting them ahead of ourselves as a sacrifice of thanks to God. That's what Hebrews 13 reminds us for. So if sacrificially loving others is not part of your life, worshiping God on Sunday is missing something because worship on God, just because it's like, well, I'm, I feel right with God. I feel like my heart's in the right place. My, my body is engaged. Yeah, but I'm cheating on, on someone. I'm, I'm profaning God's name during the week. I'm not sacrificially looking out for others during the week. Well, then your scripture has become profaned on Sunday. So we want to ask ourselves, do we offer our best as well to others as a sacrificial act of worship to God? Do we love the people that God has placed in our life closely, our family, our neighbors, the ones that are responsible, that we are responsible for? Do we love them the way God has called us to? This week, a guy was delivering some lockers to our church and he explained probably better than I could, the idea of worshiping God through love of others. And he said, he's like, it's easy to love people that are thousands of miles away. It's extremely difficult to love people that are next door or right in your home. And he hit the nail on the head. Our worship of God is profaned when we fail to love people properly. We fail to love sacrificially. So there's a lie that you can just worship God however you want. There's a lie that half-hearted, defiled worship is somehow better than no worship. And this is the third lie they believed, that we should get something out of worship. This is huge. That we should get something out of worship is a lie. We hear this often in the church today. I've said it. I just didn't get that much out of it. How was worship today? I just didn't get that much out of it. Look at Malachi 1, 11 to 14 with me. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. We're going to read that verse again in a bit and explain it. So just hold on to that. But verse 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that it may be food that its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. Says the Lord of hosts, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it. And yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Look at verse 13. He says, what a weariness it is. What a weariness worship is. I just didn't find it that charging. 
I just didn't find it that engaging today. I'm just not really that into it. Do you realize how ridiculous that attitude is? Do you realize, do I realize what we're actually saying? So imagine somebody asks you about your weekend. How was your weekend? And you say, well, I went to my, to my mom's place for a birthday party. And would you believe it? I didn't get a single gift. I got zero. It was so wearisome to go to her birthday party. Other people would look at you and say, you don't know how this thing works, do you? When you go to a birthday party, you bring all the energy, the gifts to devote to someone else and to bless them and to honor them. Well, worship is not quite the same as a birthday party. In fact, it's slightly different because we come to worship God as a response to what he's done in our lives. Worship is not about what you get out of it. It's what you got out of it. Worship isn't what you get out of it. It's what you got out of it. Worship is a response. So think about this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you're alive and you're set free. What exactly more are you looking for? What exactly more are you looking to get out of it? You were condemned without hope or a future. Now scripture says you're a co-heir with Christ, that you have an eternal hope, an eternal home. Not exactly sure what you aren't getting out of it. We owe our life to the one who saved us. And then we dare to say, what a weariness it is to come and say, thank you. You've just been rescued from a burning building. You and a whole bunch of friends rescued from a burning building, but you can't say thank you to the firefighters that rescued you. You can't agree on the size of the card that you're going to bring. I wanted a purple card. I want a red card. And you're not even realizing it's about saying thank you to the person who rescued you, who redeemed you. The style doesn't match your preference. Who cares? Who cares about your preferences? It isn't about you. It's also not about me or my preferences. This is about, in worship, it's about bringing thanks to God, praise, adoration, about saying, you alone, Jesus, are worth it all. It's about making the name of Jesus known to every other nation. In every other nation right now, virtually every other nation, there are people that are worshiping Jesus in a different language, to different songs, with different tunes. <laughs> Go figure. And it's pure worship. I can guarantee you in heaven, we're going to sing songs that don't match the preferences you have today. And that's fine. But may God forgive us for thinking that our worship was wearisome or a waste of time. Worship does take work. It takes effort to say thank you. But it's in response to what he has done for us. We're not looking to get something out of worship. We're looking to look at what we've gotten already and respond in it. There's only one desire that you should have for your worship. Only one thing that you want to get out of it. And that's a thumbs up from God, that he accepts it. That he says, you know what? I accept your worship. Through Jesus Christ, we can offer worship that is pure, that is acceptable in his eyes. On our own, nothing you bring would be good enough. You could bring your very, very best and it still would fail to represent him well. But we bring our best through faith in Jesus Christ, which alone pleases God. And guess what? God accepts your worship. 
Now here's the most exciting part of the whole passage for me. It's in verse 11. Really amazing because it says there where history is going. This is a passage that speaks to the future. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And get this, in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Even in Malachi's day, they were speaking forward. He was speaking forward and saying, there's one day it's not going to be just worship in Jerusalem. It's going to be worship everywhere. The reason we shut down profane worship is because it stands in the way of God's intended goal of history, that his name would be worshiped everywhere. The reverse is true though. God's name being worshiped everywhere happens through people accurately praising and worshiping him. So you, by coming, offering your best in worship are a small part of bringing his name and making his name great among every single nation. This is the eternal objective of God that we have an particip- opportunity to participate in, to bring glory to his name. Now, if you are finding worship to be wearisome, to be mundane, and you're like, I feel the conviction of this. It shouldn't be wearisome. It shouldn't be mundane. What do I do to change it? One is just orienting yourself around the perspective. It's not about you. It's about bringing your best to him. But here's what I have found to be true. When you see worship as just a moment to rehearse an event from 2,000 years ago, there's no tension in it. So you look at the Stanley Cup playoff games from 2007. If you watch them every single week, eventually you'll get to know every single play. Nothing catches you off guard. It can be like that when you come to church in some ways. You're like, surprise, surprise, Jesus rose from the dead. I wasn't expecting that one. No, we, we know that because we preach it and we should preach it. But if you preach it just as a historical event, it loses its power because that's not way, the way it was meant to be understood. It's a historical event that changes every moment of your life. It's a historical me- event that changes every single day. Tension in worship find, is found when we, we realize and we step out by faith to be part of the Great Commission today. Then you come to worship and you see the fruit of the last week, how God has worked, how God has redeemed, how God has saved, how God has kept you strong through persecution. And then you come back and you realize it's all about him anyways. This is all for him and for his glory. So church, we do not want to fall into the lies, the lies that you can just approach God with whatever heart you want, that you can do what he want, whatever you want, and it's accepted. We don't want to have the lie that something is better than nothing. So I'll just bring my half-baked leftovers. And we do not want to fall into the lie that I must get something out of it. Our worship is part of God's plan to bring his name glory among the nations. So let's worship like that. Let's adore him for who he is. And let's pray to that end. 